All right. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bible and uh, make your way to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter number 2, Ephesians chapter number 2, verse 1 through verse 3 uh, is going to be our text for this morning, and uh, we're continuing in our exposition through this wonderful book, and so we finally got to the end of chapter 1. We finished chapter 1, and what a glorious chapter uh, that is. And uh, we'll now begin chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first three verses as we open up this morning and continue into this, this great book. And uh, the title of the message this morning is The Depravity of Man, The Depravity of Man. And uh, we will see this very plainly in these three verses as Paul describes uh, who man is and what he does and what he is worthy of and what condemnation is upon him. And I'll give you context to this as well as we come through it. But let's read our text and we'll begin. Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we look at this text, we see that Paul is reminding the Ephesians of their past. Should we be reminded of our past? Well, who of us here really would have our past rather to be forgotten? We probably all would rather just forget Uh, about our past. I'm sure we have things we wish that we had never done or it just didn't exist. That's just part of our human nature, especially before our conversion. But the truth is, is that the past is the past and it can't be changed, so there's no point in dwelling there. But at the same time, we can learn from the past. And this is essentially what Paul is doing. He's using the past, the pre-converted state of the Ephesians to teach them something. And what he's going to teach them, and really we learn as well, is how greatly God's mercy and grace has been bestowed upon them. And that is what we also rejoice in. Many of us have heard of uh, the man named John Newton. He lived from 1725 to 1807. And John Newton is famous. He was a clergyman and hymn writer. And in his past life, he was a captain of slave ships for several years. He never allowed himself to forget how powerfully the Lord had converted him and rescued him from that hideous and evil trade. And what is it that we know John Newton most for? The beloved hymn called what? Amazing Grace. We sing the song Amazing Grace, and it was written It was written by John Newton. And that hymn flows from his personal testimony of the transformation Christ worked in him. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And in his final years, John Newton said this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. If you forget everything else in life, remember those two things. We're great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And when we come to this text here in Ephesians 2, that's exactly what we see. 
we find yet another long sentence in Greek. Now, I pointed out in chapter 1 that verse 3 through 14, that's a long run-on sentence in the Greek. It's like Paul just can't stop. He just keeps going and keeps going in this glorious doxology of God's marvelous plan of redemption, what he's done for us. But here in uh, chapter number 2, verse 1 through 7 is also one sentence in the Greek. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians of who they were before Christ, and then he'll close the sentence with who they are in Christ and what he's done for them. Now keep in mind that this sentence flows in connection to what Paul was saying earlier in his prayer at the end of chapter 1. Remember, there was no chapter breaks in the original letter that Paul wrote. So this all flows together in a context. And he prayed in chapter 1, that the Ephesians would know something. And what he wanted them to know was the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And to demonstrate that, he brought out the resurrection of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And now we're going to see the personal personal uh, reality that applies to the believer of how that same resurrection power has, ex- has impacted them. And here's what we find. How is it that the resurrection power in our conversion is so greatly seen? We see that power firstly by seeing the depravity that we were stuck in. The depravity of our sinful nature. And that is what the first three verses reveal to us about the depravity of mankind. Believe it or not, the depravity of man magnifies the mercy of God. The depravity of man magnifies the mercy of God. And understanding the depravity of mankind also gives us a clear indication why God must be sovereign in salvation of sinners. For without God initiating our conversion Himself, there would be no such thing as conversion to Christ. As we come through this text, let us who are Christians today see afresh who we were before Him. Let us remember, let us be reminded who we were and who man is in His nature. And if today you are not a Christian, it is my prayer that this text reveals to you the state that you are in. That you are in desperate need of the mercy of God and that Christ alone is salvation. And He is mighty to save sinners from their sin. So in our notes this morning, I want to point out three headings as we break down this text. Number one, we see the condition of depraved mankind. The condition of depraved mankind. And we find this in verse 1. And it revolves around the dead nature of man. And notice this first aspect that man is spiritually dead, rendering him... Lifeless. Man is spiritually dead, rendering him lifeless. Now, I will note that Paul begins this sentence of verse 1 saying, You were dead. Some translations will have also this, And you hath he quickened who were dead. And you'll notice in such translations as uh, maybe the King James or others that the you hath quickened, they are in italics. And though So when you read italics in Scripture, they are added there by the translators to help support the flow of the language. 
And they simply borrowed that word from verse 5 where he uses quickened or made alive to connect the flow of the passage. So you'll find that some translations may have that, some do not. And whether that phrase, he has quickened, is included really doesn't make any difference to the content of what Paul's describing here. So regardless of what we find here, both renderings would be true. And Paul is taking here the Ephesians into their past before they were made alive in Christ to see that they were dead. That was their past state, but God has made them alive. They were dead. They were in a state in which they were lifeless. And this, friend, is the condition of every sinner today who does not know Christ. They are indeed dead in their sin. They are spiritually lifeless. Now, what does this mean to be dead? Well, let's think in a physical sense for a moment. Someone who is dead certainly is lifeless. They have no life in them. If you go to a funeral, what's typically the scene at a funeral? You go to a funeral and you have a casket up at the front, and if you approach that casket, you see a person laying inside there. Now, you see someone who was known by other people. They have the same facial features, the same hair, the same eyes. They're wearing their own clothes. You look at the person and you say, oh, that's so-and-so. But in fact, it's actually not so-and-so. Their life is not in them. They are dead. What you're looking at is the body, the corpse of a person while their life is no longer in them. That is what death is. It is the separation of life from the body. And so when we look at the deadness of sin, we think of spiritual deadness. Spiritually speaking, to be dead in sin is to have no spiritual life. It's absent. It's absent in dead sinners. And why is it that sinners have no spiritual life? Because of their sin, they have been alienated from God who is life. Where is spiritual life? It is only in God. And outside of God, outside of Christ, man does not have such a thing. Paul will communicate this same truth later, speaking of the lost world around them in Ephesians 4 and verse 18, saying, they are darkened in their understanding, notice this, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So he's describing what this is. Dead in sin, firstly, refers to being lifeless, having no spiritual life. I quote Charles Hodge because I think he describes this well. And he says, In Scripture, the word life is the term commonly used to express a state of union with God and death, a state of alienation from Him. Life, therefore, includes holiness, happiness, and activity. And death, corruption, misery, and helplessness. All the higher forms of life are wanting in those spiritually dead. They are secluded from all the sources of true blessedness, and they are beyond the reach of any help from creatures. They are dead. They are alienated from all the blessedness, all that is spiritual life that is found in God alone. I think a great example of this is found in the prodigal son who fled from his father, demanding all his inheritance and wasting it with wicked living. And while in the pig pen, what do we see? He was awakened to his state. He was awakened to the reality of where he was and what he had done and who he had become. 
And so he determined to go back to his father, and he comes back to his father where his true life is found, and the father's words describe the state of his son. In Luke 15, 24, he says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. He wasn't spirit physically dead, he was spiritually dead. He had been alienated from his father where his life was. And this truly is the reality of every sinner in the world. We have been alienated from God, our creator, and life. John Calvin comments also on this saying, as spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God, we are all born as dead men, and we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. So we look around us and we see all the world and all the sinful people that live in this world. They live in constant alienation from God, estranged from Him, having no spiritual life in them. You say, well, where and why did such a dead condition come upon us? How did that reach us? Well, most of us know the answer to this, but I'll give you a brief summary. God told Adam, the very first man in the very beginning something would come to pass as a result of his disobedience. And what did he say would come to pass if Adam disobeyed his one command? He said, if you take of the fruit that I've commanded you not to eat, you read it there in Genesis 2.17, he says, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what do we find happen in our history? There in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they took of that exact fruit that God said, do not take of. And that very day that Adam sinned, death was brought into the very fabric of humanity. Now, Adam did not immediately physically die, but he spiritually died. He was alienated from God. And not only that, but later he would physically die. So Adam and his sin brought death into the human race. We read in Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Now, some may say, well, that isn't fair. Why do we have to reap what Adam did? Well, first, understand that Adam is ordained as the federal head, the representative of all humanity. God designed it that way, and you and I have no right to question it, because he's God. Secondly, I'll have you note that Paul says that these Ephesians were dead in trespasses and sins. It's not only Adam's guilt that is upon us, but our own. We ourselves are guilty of sin. And Paul says here that they were dead in trespasses and in sins. The word for trespasses here refers to a violation of moral standards, an offense, a wrongdoing. It speaks really of crossing over a boundary that you're not supposed to cross. That's what Adam did in his disobedience. That's a boundary that uh, our kids struggle with day after day. You know, you leave a, if you leave your food, fresh food come in, especially if it's donuts in the kitchen, and David's in there, and you say, David, don't touch the donuts, but you leave the room, He has a real temptation to cross that boundary and disobey the command of his father. Well, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did, right? 
Satan convinced Eve that this fruit was pleasant to the eyes and they'll be as gods. And So they crossed that boundary. They disobeyed the command of God. That's what Adam did. That's what we do. Then you find the word sins here. It refers to a departure from either human or divine standards of uprightness. It carries more of the idea of missing the mark, of falling short of the standard of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Fall short, fall short of the glory of God. And so with these two words, Paul gives a comprehensive look at the sinfulness of man and why we are spiritually dead in it. They are lifeless. They are alienated from God who is spiritual life. And this is why. This is why regeneration, which, which, which gives us conversion shows us the power of God raising us to spiritual life. In the power of regeneration, God has made us alive by bringing us back to Himself. Because He alone is life. We have no life outside of Him. But notice the second aspect here to the condition of man. Not only is man spiritually dead, rendering him lifeless, having no spiritual life, because of his deadness... Man is spiritually dead, rendering him powerless. He has zero power to change his condition. He has zero power to affect his condition. What, is, what, 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 what can a powerless man do? Now, what does this mean that he's powerless? Is he powerless to live in this world, to talk, taste, smell, hear, think, to make decisions? No, that's not what we're talking about. Those are all natural, physical features. And many people confuse the categories here of being spiritually dead with physically living in the world. Spiritual deadness does not mean that we're unable to function with a creaturely freedom that God's given us. Every human functions in that way. Every day I get up, I get to decide what I want to eat, eat for breakfast, what clothes I'm going to wear, and, and uh, all the things of life that God's given us in creaturely freedom. But rather understand this, spiritual deadness means that man is spiritually powerless to save himself or contribute to his saving. He has no way of contributing good or merit to his regeneration, his new state that he needs. Sinners who are dead in sin live as all other human beings. They have minds to think and a personal will that they follow. But this is an altogether different category than the spiritual. Now notice what he says here. You were dead in trespasses and sins. The word dead here means it pertaining to being so morally or spiritually deficient as to be in effect dead. <laughs> spiritually deficient. There's zero spiritual power in the lost sinner. They are helpless. They are hopeless. Just as a dead corpse lies in the grave and can do nothing to raise itself back to life. Who here has ever heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? That's kind of a common, common term, isn't it? But you know that's not from the Bible. It actually comes from the Greeks. Greeks from, from the Greek world. What we find actually the biblical truth is that here in the realm of salvation, God doesn't help those who help themselves because they can do nothing to help themselves. God helps the helpless. He helps the hopeless because we have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute. 
And so with this deadness, man cannot affect, cause, or contribute to the spiritual resurrection that Paul is talking about. If he could do such a thing, he would have it in his depraved nature, the ability to please God in some fashion. But the reality is, lost sinners do not have the ability to please God in any fashion. Even if they do what is so-called good in our culture. Romans 8 and verse 8, Paul tells us this, those who are in the flesh cannot do what? Please God. Cannot please God. What, isn't faith something that pleases God? Yes. But as we'll look at the rest of, uh, of Ephesians 2, even faith itself is a gift of God given to us that we exercise through Him. So, so you understand that all of salvation is all of God. So, so the dead, sinful state of sinners, understand, it restricts man's ability. Two things to point out here. He cannot come to God except the Father draws him. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him at the last day. Why is it that they cannot come? Because they're dead in sin. They don't have the ability to. But then there's a the second aspect, too, that he will not come because of his deadness, Because in his deadness, he does not see Christ or himself as he truly is. He's blind in his deadness. Jesus said to the Pharisees that even in light of the Scriptures, plainly revealing on black and white paper or papyri or whatever it was then, scrolls, that even though it is revealed plainly that he's the Messiah, he said in John 5, 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Why did they refuse to come to him? They did not see or understand spiritually. They were spiritually dead. So understand that sinners cannot come to God of their own power. Sinners will not come to God of their own power. Sinners are dead and must be raised by the power of God. Now consider this scenario with me. I think it's a good parallel. What can a dead man do to change his dead state? Nothing. We know the answer to that. Consider a parallel. Do you remember the resurrection of Lazarus? Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and going to die, and Jesus intentionally lets Lazarus die for the sake of coming there late and teaching them a lesson and showing his power. But he comes to the tomb after Lazarus has been dead for four days, and what's he do? He calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Calls him by name. And what happens at that moment? The Bible tells us in John eleven forty four. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What did Lazarus do to contribute to his resurrection? Absolutely nothing. What could he do? You see, Christ, by the power of his word, spoke life into him, because he is the only one who has the power to raise the dead. And Paul points out plainly that you and I, before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Jesus speaking of a spiritual resurrection, not just physical, but spiritual. In John 5, 25 says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Looking at the dead state of man, it is indeed a hopeless condition. 
Consider again the vision of the dead bones given to Ezekiel about Israel in their exile. Ezekiel 37 and verse 3. God speaking to him says, Son of man, can these bones live? That's a, that's a question, isn't it? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers, O Lord, you know. We read the rest of that passage and realize that by the breath of God, they can live. They can live. And so understand that all forms of resurrection take the power of God and are impossible to happen by the power of the dead. God must speak life into the dead because the dead can do nothing in the spiritual sense. John MacArthur comments saying, A person who is spiritually dead has no life by which he can respond to spiritual things, much less live a spiritual life. That's why you understand things like turning over a new leaf. Those don't really change a person's life. You've heard that. People need to be born again. Need to be regenerated, given life from above. Because we are not mostly dead. We are not half dead. Before Christ, we are dead totally and fully dead. And I'll close this point with a quote from Calvin. I've got a few quotes in here because I was studying, quite, studying broadly and, and I couldn't let some of them go. But he says, let this then be a fixed principle, that the union of our soul with God is the true and only life and that out of Christ we are altogether dead because sin, the cause of death, reigns in us. Now, this leads us further to our next point. Paul gives them the condition, the condition of depraved mankind. They were dead, which means they were lifeless and they were powerless. But notice with me, number two this morning, we see the course of depraved mankind. The course, the way, the path, the the, the manner of life. And we see that he breaks this down into three very plain and obvious ways. And and notice firstly that, that man follows sinful impulses. He follows sinful impulses. Man's sinful condition is fixed unless God changes it. And understand that in this fixed condition, the lives of sinners manifest their sin clearly in how they live. Now, what did Paul say here in verse 1 and 2? He said of their trespasses and sins in verse 2, he says, in which you once walked. You walked. Now, the language of walking is very common in, in the Word of God, right? There's a good way to walk. Enoch walked with God. That's a good thing, right? He was a believer. He walked with God. But what is the manner in which the world, the lost sinner, walks He walks in trespasses and sins. This is his manner of life. This is his course. This is the path he takes. This is the way in which he lives. This is his lifestyle. He walks and lives in trespasses and sins. Think of this. Lost sinners live in perpetual rebellion and disobedience to God. Perpetually, every day of their life, they live in sin against God. Now, what is it that prompts sinners to live in such a way? Is it the culture around them? Is it the people they hang out with? Well, those things may contribute to leading you in certain sins. But we must understand that the root cause of all sin is inside us. 
It's inside of men. It's in the heart. It's in their nature. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 20, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You could name a multitude of other sins. And whatever sin you can name, it all flows from the heart. You say, well, why did so-and-so do such an evil act? Because that was in his heart. We forced him to do it. It was in his heart. That, that, that is the, the root cause here. Men do not sin to become sinners. Men sin because they are sinners. Now, this is the depravity of mankind. They are dead. They are destitute as, as sinners. And Paul spells out man's depravity clearly in our own text, but he expounds on it also in Romans 3. Now, I want to turn here with you this morning. This is one of the texts I want to take you to. In, in Romans 3, verse 9 through verse 18 for a moment. Paul makes the case through Romans very plainly that all of humanity is under sin. They are under sin. As he says in Ephesians, they are dead in sin. And here he'll say that they are under sin and what that brings about. What then, verse 9 of Romans 3, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And to prove this point, that all are under sin, he quotes Old Testament Scripture about man's nature and what man does. He says in verse 10, As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friend, that is a grim, detrimental diagnosis of mankind. This is the nature of man. Now, I know that sometimes we look at humanity and think that, well, there's some good people in the world. Good in an outward sense, maybe. But not good before God. Because God says in Isaiah that even the good deeds we do, there is what? Filthy rags. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags because we're completely contaminated with sin so that we run from God, so that we sin against Him. We want nothing to do with Him. Now, many would argue that though man is sinful, well, he still has the free will to choose God and still do some good some of the time. It's true that we all have a will, but define free. What does Paul say that man does with his will here? He runs the opposite direction from God. He does not go towards God. He does not do good. He runs the opposite direction. He is certainly free to choose God if he wants, but he will not choose God. Why? Because it's against his nature. It's against the nature of man. Now, let me illustrate this. Hypothetically speaking, is a buzzard free to eat a salad? Anybody ever seen a buzzard eat a salad? No? What do you see buzzards eating? Dead, filthy, nasty, rotting roadkill. You put a salad in front of a buzzard, he's not going to eat it. He doesn't want it. He wants nothing to do with it. Most of us don't either, do we? 
I'm trying to eat some salads. I'm so that, that's turn him into a rabbit and he'll dig in. So I, I've been trying to eat some rabbit food. The nature of the buzzard does not eat what it goes against its nature. So here's the same principle. The nature of man looks at the gospel offer of forgiveness and eternal life, and he looks at it with disgust. When you consider the reality of what is offered in the gospel, who would not run to such a thing? Now, if I announce to Van Buren that at 1 o'clock I'll be at Walmart and I'm going to give everybody a million dollars, guess who's going to come? Everybody in Van Buren. But you offer eternal life and nothing. Why? Because his nature goes against that which is holy, that which is of God. He runs the opposite direction. So understand that if man is to have salvation, is to be converted, God must intervene into his very nature, changing the course of his will, affecting his will by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Because man always follows his sinful impulses. Paul shows this further in verse 3. Verse 3 of Ephesians chapter number 2. Look at this. Come down with me. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What are the passions of our flesh? The word passions refers to the great desire for something, a craving, a longing. Now, there are good passions. Passions is used in a good sense in Scripture. For example, we should have a passion and a craving for good as Christians, people who have a new nature in Christ. We long for Him. But Paul's talking about dead sinful men. He's saying about the natural sinful nature of man that it longs and craves for the sinful. It longs and craves and enjoys, takes pleasure in the sinful. That is what his flesh does. Now, Paul said of his own flesh, of which every believer is at war with, Romans seven eighteen. he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And if you read that passage, he gives that parallel of his battle with sin, battle with the flesh. Paul understood there was nothing good in his flesh. But here's the difference. The Christian is at war with his flesh. The dead sinner is not at war with his flesh. He just indulges. Continually, constantly. And all that we see, the sinfulness that comes from it's rooted inside of him. James 1, in verse 14 through 15, he gives insight to this. Every person, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There you see the inward to outward process of how this works. He follows after them with his heart. And Paul does not shy away from including himself in this. He says, in whom we all... We think, well, was Paul such a wicked man before he was saved? He was. But to the religious world, he wasn't. You understand that that there are religious people who think that they're right with God, but yet they are dead in trespasses and sins, living according to their passions and lusts? This is why the gospel must be preached to the church, even to preachers, because there are unconverted people in every category. 
He goes on to say in verse 3 that sinful men, what did they do? They, care, they went about carrying out their desires of the body and the mind, the flesh and the body is the same word there, and the mind of depraved men. It's exceedingly sinful and it is at war with God and His holiness. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Hostile towards God. The course of the dead sinner is to follow his own sinful impulses. Secondly, not only does man follow his own sinful impulses, he also follows secular influences. He follows secular influences or worldly influences. Now, in addition to him walking in his own flesh, notice the word throughout this passage. You see walked, but you'll notice this word that reoccurs too. Following. Following. This is what they follow after. Following, what does it say they're following in verse 2? Following the course of this world. Now the word course here refers to the age in which they live. The age that the Ephesians lived and we live. It's an evil age. All around us in this world are manifestations of sinfulness that lure the minds of sinners into their godless system and practices. All sorts of worldly, secular ideologies. We're going to look at some of those on Wednesday night, just a specific way. But 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17, allow me to read this to you as we see what Paul, how John lays this out. Writing to the believers, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, Desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, and whoever, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the believer is not to love the world. We're to wrestle against it. But the sinner does not do that. The sinner longs for the world that is passing away. They are following the course of this world. And why is it that they do such a thing? Because the world and its system is rooted in the depraved minds of men and it appeals to the depraved minds of men. Paul will say later to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.17, Now this I say to testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. What does Paul mean by calling them and not walk as the Gentiles do. Weren't most of these Ephesians Gentile believers? Yes, they were. But the term Gentiles was often used as the godless culture around them. And so Paul's referencing here, he's telling them, Ephesians, don't follow after the godless culture around them. And we establish how godless the culture was in the first sermon of this series. How that it was full of idolatry and, 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 and emperor worship and, and, and witchcraft and all sorts of things. And we see why the world follows after that. Because of the futility of their minds. The futility means the state of, of being without use or value. Emptiness. Purposelessness. Mankind. Lost mankind thinks he's wise and smart, but he has no clue how empty he really is. Foolish he is in his mind. It leads him further into sin. But notice the third aspect of man's course. Before Christ, we followed our sinful impulses. We followed secular influences. But we also followed satanic 
ingenuity. Satanic ingenuity. And this is connected to the world as well. But you'll notice verse 2. What does, what does Paul the Apostle say? He says, They were not only following the course of this world, but following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, it is evident that he is referencing Satan. Jesus referenced him in this way before he went to the cross. Jesus said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler or the prince of this world be cast out. So, so as, as the prince of the power of the air, he is the ruler. He is the, the leader, the prince over all the dark forces that are at work in this world. He was known as this in the days of Christ. When we read in Matthew 9, 34, the Pharisees said of Jesus, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. He was, they were trying to say, well, Jesus, you're just casting out devils by the prince of devils, the devil himself, Satan. Jesus went on to say, how can, you know, how can that happen? He, his kingdom would not stand. We know the context of that. I'm not going to go into that. But here we understand that he is known as the prince of demons. Jesus was being accused of such. But this is Satan's title. He is the prince of the power of the air. Now, that somewhat puzzles me. What does he mean by that? Why does he speak of the air? We all breathe air. What's he talking about? Well, there's a few things I'll just point out briefly to you that people interpret this. It may signify the atmosphere. Both Jews and Greeks had in their opinion that the atmosphere above was a special abode for spirits, especially the dark spirits. That's possible. Scripture doesn't give us a direct explanation of that, but I'm not going to say it's impossible. Secondly, it may simply point to the realm of darkness, as that word is commonly used. The kingdom of darkness, which we've been rescued from, as Colossians 1.13 tells us. It may also refer to the fact that Satan and his forces are above earth, meaning that they're spiritual, powerful beings. They're not earthly, as in made of the earth like we are. But regardless of how you view power of the air, it points to us that all wicked men and evil spirits are subject to Satan, whether they realize it or not. Now, the evil spirits know they are, but so many in mankind, they are ignorant to the fact that Satan is ruling their life. They don't even see it. Now, there are some that openly sell their soul to the devil. A lot of your celebrities and pop culture and, and Hollywood and, and athletes, a lot of these people are successful because they have given themselves to Satan and they have confessed that they've done that. But then there's a multitude, the average person who just has no clue. He's just walking in the deadness of his sin and he is influenced by the devil day after day, using his depravity, two going hand in hand, living out their depraved lifestyle. And we find this, as Paul connects this, saying the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In the sons of disobedience. We really don't have a clue as to how much Satan can do. How he affects, how deeply he can affect the mind, but we know that he does it. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. So sinners, understand, dead sinners live in perpetual disobedience following after Satan's working. John the Apostle wrote this in 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is what? Is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Praise God He came. Praise God that you and I are no longer following after the prince of the power of the air. But here's the reality. Satan loves that man follows him in sin and has no clue what he's doing, no matter what kind of sin it is. Thomas Watson, great Puritan, said, Sin gratifies Satan. When lust or anger burns in the soul, Satan warms himself at the fire. Oh, he just, he just takes it in. He loves when man is given to sin. And with such great sinfulness in man's depravity, we see how deep it runs. What should be expected as a result? What is, what is the due reward? What is the harvest that should be reaped from such exceeding sinfulness in men. This brings me to my last point. Number three, we see the condemnation of depraved mankind. The condemnation of depraved mankind. And I want to point out two quick things about this. We notice God's wrath is inherited with sin. God's wrath is inherited with sin. Notice what he says in verse number three. After he concludes that we've been following our passions, we've been following the world, we've been following the devil, notice what he says in the last sentence. He says, we were by nature, by nature the children of what? Wrath. The children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you understand that the combination of sin and wrath are inherited into the very fabric of our being as humans. We know that sin is in our nature. We read this time and time again how that we're conceived in sin. David writes this. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're, we, we know that that's our nature, right? This is why man is spiritually dead and can do nothing about it. It's our nature. We've inherited. MacArthur comments on that again. It says man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because his nature is sinful. So all of the depravity that we've mentioned thus far leads up to this conclusion. It is the holy wrath of God. Since sin is woven into us, so also the wrath of God rests upon us. It sits upon the ungodly. And it will be poured out upon the ungodly. All of those who are not in Christ have not come to Christ for refuge alone. Listen to John the Baptist who put it this way. In John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you have two categories. Those who believe and those who don't. Those who believe do not have the wrath of God resting upon them because they've taken refuge in Christ. But those who do not believe, who reject Christ, who run from Christ, the wrath of the Almighty God rests upon them. Them. Everyone. And here's the reality. Man is worthy of that. Which leads me to let her be here that God's wrath is deserved for sin. God's wrath is deserved for sin. It is not some thing like, oh, I just really, I think that's too bad, we, we shouldn't be have, have the wrath of God. It's deserved. 
We think, what exactly is wrath? The word used here refers to strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with focus on retribution. So understand that God directs strong indignation against sinners which results in eternal punishment. Scripture says in Psalms, He is angry with the wicked every day. Now some may say, well that seems harsh. Why is God so harsh against sinners? Let us remember few quick things. We fail to see who truly God is if we ask that question. He is often portrayed as love, love, love! Without recognizing that He is holy, holy, holy. There's only one attribute of God that is referenced three times in a row and it's the holiness of God, not the love of God. Now, God is love, and His love is bestowed through the cross. It's evident. His love is bestowed just in the fact that He lets sinners breathe. But understand that He is holy, and He will exact justice and wrath upon sin. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He must execute justice on sin. If he fails to do so, he's not holy. He would be a corrupt judge, not a righteous one. So we fail to see who God truly is. Secondly, we also fail to see who we are. You understand that we as humans, we are nothing but dust. We did not create ourselves or give ourselves life. We are wretched Beings who continually abide in sin as a pig abides in the slop. That's what man does. We deserve nothing but wrath. Thirdly, we fail to see all that God did for us and how what we did in return. Think of Adam for a moment. God created Adam from the dust, breathed into him life, placed him in paradise. Paradise fellowshiped with him intimately, gave him one command, and Adam rebelled against his holy creator by taking of the fruit, plunging all humanity into sin. Adam had everything, and yet he went the opposite of his creator. And we act the same way in our sin. So understand that the question isn't, why is God so hard upon sin, but why isn't he harder upon sin? God could have righteously and justly just eradicated all of us with no mercy. And He would have still been holy. He would have still been loving. He would have still been all that He is. And yet every day, wicked man, day by day, still gets to breathe God's air. And He lets them live. There's coming a day in which the wicked will receive God's wrath that they deserve. There is a day of judgment coming. Revelation 21 and verse 8 tells us, But as for the cowardly and faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That is the ultimate climax of God's wrath. And sinner, understand today that God's wrath rests upon you. God's wrath rests upon you and you will reap it if you abide in your sin, rejecting Christ as the Savior of sinners. 
Because Christ alone is the escape from this wrath. And here's why. Because on the cross of Calvary, Jesus took the cup. Drank all of it. Not a literal cup, but the cup of God's wrath. There on the cross, He cries out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And He concludes His cross work with, It is finished. So that there on the cross, you understand, when it went dark for several hours, that Jesus, the perfect, innocent Son of God, bore the wrath of God in place of sinners. And in His death, He satisfied the demands of God's justice. But not only that, three days later, He rose from death so that death is not the victor. And all who believe on Him are saved from that wrath. All who know Him only by faith. And with this reminder of man's depravity and damnation, Paul is bringing the Ephesians' attention to see the depth of God's power in saving them. Because this is who they were. The bad news about man is what makes the good news about Christ so glorious. As Paul Washer said this, I love this quote, the cross of Jesus Christ and its glory is most magnified when it is placed in front of the backdrop of our depravity. Christian, I'll close with this. You must see what it took for your salvation. You may have been saved a long time, many, many years. But don't ever forget what God has saved you from. Don't ever forget what God has saved you from. Remember the power and grace that saved you. Who you were. What you did. Where you were headed. All of this comes to the resurrection power of Christ bringing you to life because you were dead in sin. And if you're lost and undone here this morning, you don't know Christ, this passage should make you tremble before the Holy One. It ought to make you tremble inside. You are dead in sin, living in sin, following sin, on your way to eternal damnation. You have no hope except Christ and His death on the cross for sinners. So I invite you, if you see that this is you and your sinfulness, look to Christ today. Believe on Him. Trust only in Him, not yourself, not your religion, not this church, not a pastor, not anything, Christ and Christ alone. Let us stand as we pray and prepare for closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning, so thankful, Lord, for this text. We hear many, many messages about the love of God and the mercy and salvation that you've given us, but Lord, none of that really means much without the true news of who we were and why we needed mercy, why we needed your love, why we needed salvation. The depravity of man that Paul reveals here is so striking to our hearts. And as I read it, I am eternally grateful for the power that you have wrought towards us through the gospel work of Jesus and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that you have brought us to faith that we know we are forgiven and are safe from your wrath. 
Lord, help us as Christians to rejoice in this great salvation. Help us to remember it. And Lord, if there's any here today that is unsure of their salvation, and perhaps see that they know they are in this dead and lost sinful state, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that you would regenerate their heart, that they would be born again, that they would look to you by faith and know of a surety that they have been saved and rescued in Jesus alone. We pray all these things in Christ's name.